Focus is the key to training, especially indoors, especially in the winter. You need to be single-minded in purpose to throw your leg over the trainer and hit your numbers day after day. This year, wouldn't it be nice if your indoor setup is as purposeful as your training? So here is the news that the training obsessed have been waiting for. The Watt Bike Adam is now available in the U.S. Born from a partnership with British Cycling, Watt Bike was the first dedicated smart bike to offer integration with third-party apps like Zwift, Trainer Road, Full Gas, and other leading training tools. With the real ride feel technology and a plus or minus 2% data accuracy across the power curve, you always have the perfect training partner. Get the purpose-built flagship of your pain cave at wattbike.com slash US. That's W-A-T-T bike.com forward slash U-S. So I've put this on Mark Hershey. How good have Sunweb been yeah. strategically? The calling the shots. And what I like about Sunweb and putting tradition aside, Matt Winston has been the guy calling a lot of the shots for them. Now, here's a guy who's never raced in the pro peloton. So he's not bound by tradition. And then the stage into Lyon that Soren Crow Anderson won, they initially had two guys in the break. They thought the break was going to be maybe 10 or 12 riders. It was only another couple of guys out there and he figured, not going to work, waste of energy. Back you come. So not bound by tradition at all because he hasn't ridden the tour. He's making clear decisions based on what he thinks is the best option for the team. And they have been, I think, with the resources that they've got, the best team strategically. They've been absolute joy to watch. It's the final week of the tour and the final episode of In the Shade of the Tour. This week, we go behind the commentary box with Australian commentator and cycling encyclopedia, Matt Keenan. Hello and welcome to our final episode of our Tour de France special in the shade of La Tour. My name is Angus Morton and yes, you got it right. As always, I am joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Gus. Man, I can't believe that we're all ready to the last week of the tour. I mean, this has definitely flown by. Been some amazing racing, taking up a bulk of my morning. I always try to have my computer and get some work done, but I'm just so passionate about the sport that I can sit there and watch it from start to finish and and not even realize it. So it's it's been an interesting week. Uh, my daughter, Olivia, turned 18 years old. So let me tell you, that was a little bit more emotional than I thought because I realized that I have an adult in the house now. She's not going to college this year due to the, the issues that are around us. You know, she's working, she's taking some online classes and staying busy, but that was, um, that was a reality check, an 18-year-old, um, kind of crazy. I remember when I, I turned 18, I was actually here in, in the USA, and at 18 in Australia, you're allowed to drink, um, but here you're not. And I think, you know, my dad's been waiting 18 years to buy me my first beer, and we go out to dinner, and he buys me... A beer and he gives it to me and and I get carded of course because I don't I I look young and the guy's like you can't drink and he takes the beer off me and dad's like no but it's his 18th birthday and they had this back and forth and and you know 
I didn't get my first beer that night, but I nearly got my first bar fight uh, alongside my old man because he was <laughs> he was adamant that they were going to bend the rules to let me have a beer. So that's my that's my 18th birthday story. Yeah, I I was very proud of her. It seemed like the thing that she was most excited about was being able to vote. And she said that she wanted to buy a lottery ticket. And I don't think she's ever mentioned buying a lottery ticket, but those, I guess, are the two things that she can do now compared to, to 17. She still can't drink till she's 21, of course. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was a, was a good week. It was a good week. What were you up to? Mate, not, not a great deal here. We've had, a, we had snow last week. Uh, and then it's been hot and sunny in Colorado, and and obviously the the smoke from the fires burning around around the rest of the U.S., which is which is uh, sad to see. But mate, just uh, head down in the Tour de France, and and what a week of racing it has been. And you you said something really interesting just then before we get into the show. But um, you said you're just so passionate about this sport, and it's funny to hear to hear you say that because I think during the lockdown. With no racing going on, we were really left to to look at what the sport is and to really look at you know all of the I guess the flaws and and the things that we would like to see that can be done better and, and we did our fair share of of you know reporting and, and and looking into some of those issues ourselves. But when you do see the racing and it is back on television, I really got yeah I you know that passion really came back for me and it's been really exciting and 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 really nice to watch the sport and and after sort of these months of of hard doing i guess to to get to sit back down in front of the tv and be like yeah i do really love this sport and this is really amazing entertaining brilliant racing that we're seeing so and it's just starting to to feel a little bit more normal i know mm. that it's september and the tour de france is normally in july but yeah it's just kind of giving you that 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 sense of normalcy that I think at least cycling fans uh, appreciate, at least myself. And the other real kind of eye-opener was that the NFL started again this week. So these are the two sports that I'm most passionate about. But I must say, uh, you could probably see the bags under my eyes, Gus. Our listeners can't. But I stayed up until I think 1.30 last night watching my beloved Denver Broncos just stink it up at the end and lose the game. <laughs> and I have to say, I was absolutely rooted all day long. And, I, you know, if you want to stay up till, you know, late, one thirty isn't that late. But like one thirty, and then getting up and watching the tour, I mean, I had sleep in my eyes watching the tour this morning. And I was like, man, I'm just, not only do I have an 18-year-old in the house, I'm, I'm just a wimp. You know, I, I can't stay up late anymore. But yeah, those those two things have definitely helped this week fly by. And, you know, other than my Broncos losing, it also helped feel normal again. Yeah. And speaking of, of normal, right, the Tour de France is nothing without its voice. Um, and we've had, you know, Phil Liggett and, and the late Paul Sherwin gracing our, our airwaves for God knows how long, forever. And when you turn the tour on and you hear those voices, it, it does bring back that feeling of normalcy and that feeling of, of nostalgia, right? And and that brings us to this week's show and, and, and this week's guest. And from his first Pro Tour race as a commentator in 2007 at the Tour of Qatar, which I might add was my first pro race, commentator Matt Keenan has graced the airwaves with his witty and in-depth commentary. 
Stepping out of the shadow of his mentors, Phil and the late Paul, Matt has brought his own voice to the tour and alongside former pro Robbie McEwen, they've both been calling the shots for the race in emphatic fashion. But alas, stuck in Australia due to the travel restrictions uh, and obviously coronavirus, we grabbed Matt, who's commentating for SBS now instead of ASO, and sat down with him to get an insight into what it takes to be the voice of the world's greatest race. Welcome to Put Your Socks On, Matthew Keenan. Hey, man, thanks for staying up late or getting up early. I'm not really sure what it is down there in Australia right now. Yeah, I'm a little bit confused about the time zone as well. I'm working night shift. I'm normally at the tour, but because of the coronavirus, I'm, I'm in Australia. By the way, I love the name. I love Get Your Socks On. Gus, you would remember Dave Sanders, a great coach here in Australia. He always said yep. the first part of your training plan, get your socks on. Because until you get out the door, then it's no good having all the plans in your training program in the world. Well, that's <laughs> kind of how we came up with this whole name, actually, anyway. And it's put your socks on, not get your socks on. But I guess I was quoted a long time ago by saying, hey, once you put your socks on, you're committed to the day. And so yeah. just, just once you, once you lean over and uh, commit to that, there's no going back. So um, yeah, like kind of funny. So yeah, let's cut cut to it. I mean, why are we talking to you in Australia instead of the tour? I mean, is it only to do with the restrictions, the travel restrictions, or what's the the real story there? Yeah, if there wasn't the coronavirus, I would be at the tour. I'd be there with Robbie McEwen. I'd be working for ASO. And we've been doing the international feed on the commentary. But because of the coronavirus, which kicked in at Paris-Nice, I was at Paris-Nice commentating for ASO. And the first stage was normal. Second stage, there were all the rumours about potentially there's going to be restrictions. And then by the third stage, there were no spectators at all at the finish line or at the start village. And then by the time I got home, I had to do two weeks of self-isolation because of coronavirus and I'd been in France and so on. And then... Australia put in really strict restrictions as to who could travel, who could leave the country. And there had to be certain circumstances for why you could leave. And a lot of that was to provide medical support and so on. And Robbie and I, we could have applied for the exemption to travel. Not sure whether we would have got it or not, but it became pretty clear fairly quickly that it was going to be difficult for us to get home if we did. There are still quite a few Australians struggling to get home. Mm. And you cannot get an international flight into Melbourne still at the moment. And I live in Melbourne. And on a lot of the flights, if you've got an economy class ticket, you're just getting bumped off because they're restricted to 25 or so people on the flights. And it's first class and business class. I'd love to fly first class, but I don't have the income for it. So, you know, we're in Australia doing just the the commentary for SBS in Australia. Hopefully we'll be back in Europe next year doing it for ASO and doing the World Food. Wait a second. Wait a second. So you're saying that you work for the ASO and you don't fly at least business class when they they fly you over? Yeah, that's correct. No, I fly economy. Man, you know, we've known for a long time that the Tour de France has kept their prize list basically the same. So you think that, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, it's been the same amount of money to win the tour. So you think they'd have some little slush fund to get you guys over there in style. That's a long flight. Yeah, it's a long flight. It's a, well, Gus, you know the flight well. It's a 24-hour flight or so. But, Bobby, I'm competing for my job. I'm competing with people who are coming from the UK. That's where all my competition is coming from. They can get on the Eurostar mm. for 60 euros. So that's part of my competition in terms of, um, you know, 
what their other alternatives are for a commentator. So tell me then, right, you're on the other side of the world. Uh, you're staying up all hours of the night. What are the differences between commentating from, from the other side of the world versus being there on the ground at the tour? Uh, you lose a, a couple of key things about the feel for it. So normally what we do, Robbie and I have a program of how we assess the end of the stage. And both of you guys from racing, you would know the handbook doesn't tell the full story. So what we do at the end of each stage is from the hotel, I will drive to the stage finish and Robbie will either ride from the hotel to the finish or jump out of the car with 20 or 30 Ks to go. So he can really do an assessment of that approach into the finish line, particularly on the stages for the sprinters. For some reason, he's not that keen to do it on the mountaintop <laughs> finishes, particularly the ones that he's ridden before. So we get a really, we get a really good look um, at how the stage finish is. And then you also, you get the wind direction, which you can look that up online, but it's not quite the same. You can get a feel for the wind direction. Robbie will see where the potholes are on the corners. And then when we walk into the commentary tribune, you've got all the different nationalities. You've got the Danish guys, the Norwegians, the Dutch, the Belgians, etc. And you go and chat to them. So you get the on-the-ground gossip of the lesser-known writers from those countries that isn't on the internet. And I always like to have a thing where add value to the pictures is one of the points that I used to put on the screen when I first started commentating. So I like to be able to inform people when I'm commentating about stuff that they can't find from Dr. Google. I like to add a little bit more value than that. And you can normally get that by talking to the different nationalities. So we miss out on those, those elements of it. The upside of commentating from home is I get to see my family each day, which, you know, normally I spend maybe five months or so in a hotel bed. So that's been one of the positives. And how do you overcome some of those those kind of obstacles, right? Like one thing I that you just said then, right, is that being on the ground around the other commentators, you know, even being around writers, that sort of stuff, you pick up you pick up the atmosphere, but you pick up bits and pieces that aren't kind of communicated normally. Are you in contact with yeah. writers or teams or how are you trying to add value to the pictures um, from thousands of miles away? Yeah, we still have some contact with riders, but not as much as you normally would have because of the distance. Uh, Simon Gerrans is over there working on the race as well. So I speak to Simon Gerrans every single day and he takes me through the last part of the race, the last few kilometres. You look at the race handbook and it's got a left-hand corner with 750 metres to go. He'll tell us how tight it is. So he often rides the last part as well and he'll talk us through it, um, give us a bit more of a flavour for what's happening on the ground. So, so Simon is doing the, the feed that you normally do because yeah. I guess, um, I, I assume he still lives in Monaco, so that wasn't a problem for him. But what, what are you, who are you working for during the tour? SBS. Because I see that you're also doing something a little bit on the Zwift platform. I see you sweating to the old Graham Brown oldies. Bobby, I'm training the house down. I'm the fittest 45-year-old in the commentary box in Melbourne. <laughs> I'm the only one in the commentary box in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, um... Yeah, so we're doing it for SBS, which is the Australian network that has had the tour coverage since 1991. And it was just, it was just announced that SBS will have it until 2030. So that'll be 40 editions of the tour. So at least until 2030. And in it, that's one of the other things that I'm doing. So Graham Brown, who you, know, you would have known from back when he was racing with Rabo Bank, a dual gold medalist in the Olympics. I had a fair bit to do with Graham throughout his career. He said, oh, you're going to be at home. I've got an idea. Why don't you let me coach you through the tour and see if I can get you fitter at the end than what you are at the start? Because normally when I'm on the tour, you know, you would have known this from your, your time working as a sports director and a team, Bobby, you, you're in the car a lot. 
you don't get to actually have much time to exercise for yourself. So he's been coaching me. I've been doing an hour a day. He sent me a pair of power cranks, which is really disappointing because they're very accurate. So I can't hide. Uh, there's no getting away with anything. And it's been on Zwift as well. And he had a session that I was doing the other day and I got, I just couldn't, I couldn't get it done. I'm right near the last interval and he only had one minute rest period for me. I hit the pause button during the rest. I needed to <laughs> extend it to two minutes and I got a text message from him. He says, come on, mate, keep going. So it's been good fun being able to do, do the training whilst I've been commentating. Brownie would be a brutal coach. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're absolutely right about, you know, getting unfit when you're working around the races, you see these guys, you know, just skin and bones at the best form of their life. And you're sitting in the car, you know, drinking a Coke, having a sandwich, not getting any of those endorphins and even more exhausted after the race with than than some of the riders, because like you're, you're up super early. And that's what I wanted to kind of talk to you about when you're, you just amaze me. Uh, so many of you commentators just seem like you're talking the entire time, but it's always something super interesting. And like you said, not off Google. So what is your, your research? Uh, like what, what do you do to prepare? Like the riders go up and train at altitude, you know, they, they do races. What do you do to prepare to be ready uh, to commentate a certain stage or a certain race? Well, as Gus probably knows pretty well. I'm a bit of a nerd for starters. So I do do a fair bit of preparation and I'm preparing all year round, just as the riders are. So whenever there's races that I'm not working on and I see something interesting or I read an article about an athlete that I find interesting, particularly if it's something that's not about a bike race result, if it's about something that they did in their childhood, if it's about another sport that they did, part of their education, I'll add that to my database on the rider. So I've got a database that I'm constantly updating. So that's an ongoing process. So it's hard to quantify that in terms of hours. So I just keep updating that. Then when it comes to the tour, I have two start lists. I have a start list that has just got a really brief set of stats on every single rider. So it'll say their age, where they're from, generally not just their country, but it'll say what town that they were born in, their height, their weight, a couple of key results, how many times they've ridden the tour. So as if they appear in the breakaway, I've got a really quick reference point on them. And then I've got another, I print that out. So that's in a hard copy. Then online on my own computer, I have an extensive database, which will tell me a little bit about their background, where they went to school. It'll, the story about Sepp Kuss, there was a really good article on him in Cycling Tips a little while ago that talks about going through college and then you know, he was, you know, winning some races earlier on and talking about, you know, oh, this is, this is good. Maybe I'll keep going with cycling. But when I finish unit, you know, college, I'll be able to go and do, you know, do this for work. So I've got that just ongoing. Then each day during the tour, I spend about an hour and a half or so going through the book that tells us the details about the churches and the chateaus and all that sort of stuff. And you've got no idea how much feedback we get on that. We get more feedback on that than we do on the race. And then I go to try and find all the quotes I can from writers, look for every interview and so on. And then each day, Robbie and I, we have a tour media medal. So votes, one vote, two votes, three votes for the most interesting or outrageous things to say. George Bennett would normally get three votes every single day, but some of his stuff isn't fit for broadcast. Uh, and then, you know, try and contact writers, talk to other commentators. I get to the stage finish normally at least a minimum of two hours before the broadcast starts leave around about an hour after it finishes, get to the hotel 10 or 11 o'clock, wake up in the morning at eight o'clock and we start again. So 
all this is your research. You don't have like that little microphone in your ear of your producer telling you what to say or what chateau is coming up. You kind of have to be on point that whole time. Yeah. So when we do the world feed, we don't have production support at all. So I get a countdown that says, you know, 10 seconds, nine, eight, seven, six, et cetera. And then it comes up. We just get a one page run sheet that says what happens at the start. And then at the finish, the order of the Jersey presentations. And then it's a map for the next day stage. And then it closes. I don't have a producer in my ear at all, but we do, we have race radio in our ear. And just to be, just to clarify that, like it's, it's just you and Robbie sort of fending for yourselves. Like there's no production team at all allocated to you blokes just to to do your thing yeah in the last two years there's been a bit more production around it there's been anthony mccrossan who's now doing the world feed this year he stepped into my role this year um he stepped in and doing a little bit more and they're doing some stories at the start so they'll get an interview Mm -hmm. from yesterday's stage winner those sorts of things that they'll put in at the start of the program but by comparison to working for a network where you've got a producer in your ear the whole time talking you through when the next ad break is coming up and so on there's virtually no production support. In addition to that, there's no there's no ad breaks, right? So you've got a long stage. One of the biggest challenges is your hydration strategy. So you need a nature break in a bike race. You need a nature break in commentary also. But I've done the Vuelta España sometimes on my own and there's been six hours of commentary where I haven't been able to go out to the bathroom. So you have a strategy of getting into the commentary box dehydrated so as you can drink a little bit whilst you're actually commentating. <laughs> that sounds oh ridiculous. God, that sounds it's unhealthy. <laughs> we, we, to, which do you unhealthy. prefer? Um, do you prefer having a team around you and a producer in your ear, or are you are you are you sort of happier just just being you and Robbie and and, and being able to just you know handle it all yourselves? Uh, it's good to have a team around you in case anything goes wrong. So as you can, it's always good having support. It's always better working as part of a team. Yeah, for sure. With the sport of cycling just embedded with so much history and tradition from the races to the team managers and to the commentators. Our sport doesn't seem to like change, right? And with Phil Liggett and the late Paul Sherwin ruling the airwaves for so many years, how how did you break into the commentary box? That was hard in many respects, but they were the reason that I got there. So they really helped me. So 2007 was when I got my first opportunity. That's when I first commentated on the tour. But going back before that, uh, I got the chance to work with Phil at the Bay Cycling Classic, which is a small criterium series in Victoria. And, you know, I got along with him reasonably well. He took a bit of a shine to me and, you know, I felt quite like quite a good, good relationship. And then I was also hosting a radio show and I thought it's probably going to be in my interest to get to know Paul Sherwin, just in case a window of opportunity opens up. So I contacted Paul to do an interview with him about his career. I thought, you know, that's a, that's a good way to get on good terms with a guy that's got a fair bit of influence. And then I started interviewing him fairly regularly. So I built up a relationship with those, those two guys with in mind, if there's an opportunity, maybe they'll recommend me. Then in 2007, Tour of California and Tour of Qatar clashed both in February. ASO, doing the broadcast for Tour of Qatar, Phil and Paul weren't available, so they contacted Phil and Paul. Who do you recommend? Oh, we recommend this guy, Matt Keenan, in Australia. ASO had never heard of me and hadn't heard me commentate, didn't know who I was, but they took their recommendation. So then I went to the Tour of Qatar based on Phil and Paul's recommendation in 2007, 
And they said, okay, well, we've had for the last couple of years, different person do the lead up the first, you know, 50, 40 kilometers, the lead up to Phil and Paul for the tour. We're looking for somebody else. Consider this an audition. So I was absolutely shitting myself <laughs> before doing that first commentary. I thought this could be my chance to get to the tour. And I was terrible, absolutely terrible that first day. And then afterwards I said, oh, how did you think today went? They said, oh, we had some technical problems, so we didn't really hear you. I thought, fantastic. Uh, and then eventually, so 2007, I got invited to go and do my, do my first tour. And you're right, Bobby, about people don't like change. And by that point, you know, Phil, and, Phil had done 40 tours almost by that point. Uh, Paul had been doing it since 1986. And to walk in the shadows of those guys, I went on air and I didn't want to listen to me either. I wanted to listen to Phil and Paul instead of hear my voice. And it turns out this was the same with social media. That was the feedback I got as well. Yeah, that's got to be hard. I mean, I grew up listening to the voices of Phil Liggett, John Tesh, you know, commenting on the Tour de France. And back then it wasn't six hours of live commentary. It was basically a recap show because we didn't have the internet and all these streaming possibilities that we have today. And I still remember Phil saying this sentence, and I believe it was Greg LeMond just off the back of a group in the Tour de France. And he said in his very eloquent accent, if the American cannot soon make contact, his race will be over. And I tell you one thing, That sentence went through my mind so many times during my career, and it motivated me to suffer that little bit more. When you're commentating and you're saying these things, do you know that you will have that that effect on the writers or the people at home listening, like, you know, young 14-year-old Bobby Julik when he heard this come out of Phil Liggett's mouth? Uh, I hadn't thought about it. But I guess so, because I was the same as you, Bobby. And I watched, we got the American broadcast. So we had John Tesh as well. And the one thing that I always remember, and we just got those highlights packages. So you only got the really good parts, which when I first started commentating on the tour, I only commentated on the boring parts. And as soon as it got exciting, I had the American producer say, okay, Matt Keenan, throw it to Phil and Paul now in 10. No, but I remember John Tesh saying, when Greg LeMond rides the Tour de France, it blows an ill wind for the rest of the peloton. <laughs> and, and, and he would always, you know, because he was a composer, he would put music on it. Yeah. And I heard rumors of him like staying up late into the, in the truck, like composing what we heard. And that, that music, that dun 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 that was so powerful. That was yeah. so powerful. Yeah. Will Pedro Delgado sprout wings in the Pyrenees? Or will it be the spectacle Parisian Lauren Fignon who recaptures the male Jean? I loved John <laughs> Tesh. He was fantastic. I had no idea he was a composer oh, as well. Oh, mate, he was the best. He was so good. And then you got that, that American high standard production. Mm. And then you got Phil and Paul's eloquence with the British accent. Those two came together. And the music, it was, it was Hans Zimmer mixed in with their voices, the Tour de France. It was just amazing. That's how I fell in love with the tour. And Bobby, that you're right in terms of I feel that sense of responsibility of passing on and carrying that baton. And they're enormous shoes to follow in. And when I started doing commentating full-time, when I left having a real job and doing this full-time in 2010, I figured I'd better write a business plan Otherwise, I might not be able to pay the bills anymore. 
And I started with a mission statement. And my mission statement was have as many people as possible fall in love with cycling. You know, have them get bitten by the bike bug. And that's what I want to do is have my passion come through the TV screen so they fall in love with cycling the same way I did when I listened to John Tesh with that commentary or Phil Liggett. What about when Dagoda Lawrenson won to lose Artie Den and Phil says, every dag has his day. <laughs> hey, how was that? Dude, I, I, yeah. I think I remember I remember that stage. That was 1987? Correct. When he, when he was on 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Well, and, and how do you come up? You know, I, I've listened to you quite a bit the, the last couple of years. And do you actually like study or do research on like interesting ways to say a normal sentence? Because like you can't just pull that off the top of your head multiple times. You have to do some research, right? Yeah, I read a lot and that helps. So if you read people that write well, you get the sense of that sort of thing. I also listen to a lot of other sports, a lot of other commentators. And there was an Australian commentator in AFL football, Dennis Cometti, who he definitely worked on his lines, definitely worked on his lines. And one of his great lines was there's this Australian footballer called Tony Liberatore, who was a little guy and really tough. And he, one line he said one time was, Tony Liberatore, he goes into the pack optimistically, comes out mystically optical, like, his ability to get the lines was just, just phenomenal. So I've always admired great commentators. Um, you know, I was the kid that went for a bike ride on his own up a hill and the voice in my head was me commentating. I was racing against Gert Jantoinister and Stephen Rooks and Delgado and Lucha Herrera and we were going toe-to-toe and somehow I beat them even though I couldn't win a club race. So you've told us what it takes to be a commentator, right? What goes on on the ground and we've spoken about the greats of commentating. Knowing you're following in those footsteps and, and that's the role you're assuming, right? Like what do you see as the key to being a good commentator? What is the, that kind of the X factor to, for lack of a better term? The X factor. Well, the thing, so the thing about Phil, for example, it doesn't actually matter what he <laughs> says. It's how he says it because he says it that well. So it's how he says it. And Also, you you should be able to listen to a commentator in a language that you don't understand and not know a single word they're saying, but determine whether that commentator is good or not because of the light and shade in their voice. And my, my wife has zero interest in cycling. I'm talking zero. And I'll tell you a story in a minute that gives you some context of how little interest she has. And she will say to me, if that that's boring or that was good based on light and shade. So if you're just, if it sounds like it's 500 metres to go the whole way through, you know, super excited the whole way through, this is amazing, this is amazing, this is amazing, that's boring. It's got to be storytelling early. It's got to be up and excited when there are attacks happening and you've got to have the crescendo when the winner goes across the line. So there's that, the ebbs and flows. In addition to that, you've actually got to know the sport. You can't fake it because the people watching, they know the sport. They are in love with it. So it's got to come from a position of passion. You've got to love it first. Anybody who's successful at anything, really successful, they're passionate about it. You know, Bobby, you couldn't have achieved what you did on the bike if you weren't passionate about it because the sport's too hard. And in a, in a public position, you're going to get a lot of free advice on what you're doing wrong. So you've got to be passionate about it to keep pushing on. Um, so know your staff, be passionate about it, be genuine because people know if you're a fake and, and light and shade, that sort of thing. 
just to quickly give you a bit of context on how little my wife has any interest in, in cycling. She came to the tour once, 2011. Cadell Evans is about to become the first Australian to win the tour. Our commentary box is on the finish line at 25 metres to go and with our eight, then 18-month-old daughter. And she arrived and I said, do you want to come and watch Cadell right across the finish line, become the first Aussie to win the Tour de France? No, there's a really nice park just behind there. I think Kartika and I are going to go and have a picnic. I said, come on, I can bring you back tomorrow. I can bring you back on Monday for a picnic. I can't bring Cadell back tomorrow to win the Tour for the first time as an Aussie. <laughs> so she, I've convinced her, had to convince her to watch Cadell win the Tour. Your wife and my wife are super similar with that, <laughs> that's for sure. It, it gets kind of frustrating because, you know, I work from home, I use my phone, I, I coach riders, and the one thing that I can't understand that she hasn't gotten the concept of is gear ratios. You know, she'll just be like, what are you talking about this 57, 13, 17, 19? Like, she just doesn't get it. And like, I try to take her out and say, okay, here's the big chain ring, here's a little chain ring. And she, I just lost her at, as soon as we walked <laughs> out the door. She was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. But to me, the best thing about a commentator is that he has a wingman. And yeah. you and Robbie McEwen make such a great team. Tell us a little bit about that dynamic that you guys have, which is just so natural. I mean, I get the impression that you guys are best friends, but how did you guys get to get hooked up together in this? I've known Robbie for, for a long time. In racing, well, I didn't really race against him. I was in races with him and I made him look good by finishing a long way behind. He wouldn't remember me much from, from racing against me because he was too far out in front. But then, you know, throughout his career, our relationship was, you know, me interviewing after him after races. And he was always a really interesting guy to interview because there wasn't the filter. There wasn't the spin doctoring. He told you what he, what he thought. And I always, once I started getting to the position of commentating on the tour, thought that would be my guy to commentate with. And then as soon as he retired, I put it forward, put the idea in the mind at SBS, the broadcast network here in Australia that covers cycling, that Robbie's the guy that I would like to commentate with. And then as soon as we got in the commentary box together, it just clicked because I had an enormous amount of respect for him and his bike IQ. I mean, he was a smart bike rider, really, really smart. And then, you know, he had respect for me for the amount of research that I'd done and, you know, got myself organised and so on. And then as it turned out, we hadn't spent much time together before commentating together. We actually really enjoyed each other's company when we traveled. And he's been, he's been really good for me in that um, I've got a schedule and I'm really organized and he's really relaxed. And the first tour that we did together, we, we went out to dinner the night before the tour was to start. And he says, now, Kino, I need you to know something. I don't do schedules. I said, okay, Robbie, well, we've got a little problem here. <laughs> Because the, the stage starts at a certain time and we have to be on air when the stage starts. So if we can just agree we're going to be in the commentary box when the stage starts, we're right, okay? I said, yeah, I can do that. Okay, cool. So we just get a lot. We do. We get along really well. And I have a lot of fun when I travel with him. Uh, we've only been pulled over by the police twice whilst he's been driving. There was, there was one time we were coming down off a mountain and there was a bunch of John Darms coming and Robbie thought, oh, we're going to get a quick evacuation. I'm getting in behind the gendarmes. So he's laid off the car that's just in front of us to give himself a bit of a run at to get in behind the gendarmes. And there was a couple of other tour official vehicles behind the gendarmes. And Robbie has just thrown his massive hook and he's slotted right in behind them. 
And he's looked in the car behind us and Greg LeMond was in the passenger seat. And Robbie's looked back, he looks across to me, he goes, yellow jersey, green jersey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, once a bike racer, always exactly. a bike racer. Oh, he's, he's awesome to travel with. He's fantastic. Exactly, the race in the cars and the race from the finish. You've been around the sport for a long time. Like you've mentioned, obviously, you know, knowing Robbie, knowing Brownie during their career. Another name that comes to mind is is Mitch Docker, um, and he's still racing. Yeah, I'm interested to know, like, how do you do you contain your bias for riders when on your when you're on the air, or do you let it slip through? Uh, uh, try to try not to let it slip through, but how can it not? <laughs> so Mitch Docker's Mitch Docker's dad used to take me out bike riding when I first started as a 14, 15 year old after school, and so I've known Mitch since he was three years of age, I think, three or four years of age, I first met Mitch. So if Mitch wins a big bike race, I might break the microphone with excitement. And then we had Matt Heyman win Paris-Roubaix up against Tom Burnham. Now, I knew Matt's older brother, Michael, from, from racing. I've known Matt since he was about 16. And he's coming into the velodrome in Roubaix against the guy who's won it four times. Going into the velodrome that day, Heyman had won two pro races throughout his career. Boonen had won more than 100. So we, everyone loves the story of the underdog. I kind of stopped commentating, I think, and I started barracking. But, you know, if I feel guilty about that, just turn on Colombian radio and have a listen to those guys commentate on Danny Martinez, win the stage the other day at the tour. It's, it's really joyous. And then I posted that, the, the Colombians commentating on, on Martinez winning, and Caleb Bjorn responded, and he wrote back, I want you to get that excited when I win. So I went back, okay, you, you keep your end of the bargain. I'll work on mine. So he needs to win in Paris and we'll see how excited I can get. Well, given his run so far, it's, uh, that's not, that's not uh, out of the question. Yeah, but just on that, I try, when, particularly when I'm commentating for ASO, I do try to be neutral. And there was a great Australian cricket commentator, Richie Benno, who had eight rules of commentary. And one of them was there's no team called us or them. And he was commentating on a sport where it was nation versus nation, and he still tried to remain neutral. And tell me a little bit, because Gus and I are, are new to this game. I think this is episode 70, which does sound like a lot uh, more than I thought we were going to do. But what are the, the main challenges that you face? For me and for Gus, I don't even think Gus can pronounce my name correctly yet, but for me, it's pronunciation of all these writers' names. And it's obviously a big thing, but like people mispronounce my name my entire career and still do it today. So it it doesn't really phase me, but it's it's some of the feedback that we've gotten on our podcast is that you guys need to learn the pronunciation of people's names. And I'm like, listen, I just don't know. But what are are some of the challenges that you have to face um, doing, doing what you do? That's a big one. And that's a big one for, for everyone. And it's, you know, it comes down to the towns as well as, so, you know, mm. your town that they're going through the name of a church, the name of a chateau, that is absolutely an enormous one. And that's the one that most commentators get the most feedback on. And it can be really interesting uh, when you're getting the feedback on something and it's, you know, you've actually researched and found out the correct pronunciation. I had an example this year, Benoit Cosnefoy in the King of the Mountains Jersey. So, I saw him at Paris-Nice this year and I wasn't sure how to pronounce his name. So I went to the team and checked because there was debate as to whether you pronounce the S or not. And he said, no, 
you pronounce the S and then the AG2R Le Mondial team manager gave us an audio on the phone of the pronunciation of his name. So I've been pronouncing his name correctly. You do pronounce the S. I would have had a dozen messages on social media throughout this year's tour. Learn how to pronounce the riders' names correctly. You don't pronounce the S in French for Cosnefoire. Well, according to Benoit, you actually do. And then, <laughs> and then, and then it depends on whether. So when I was, you know, first started commentating on the tour, if I could have it correct, but if it was not consistent with Phil and Paul, I'd get told I was incorrect. So Brice Filou, for example, we you know made his debut at the tour. And Phil and Paul, for whatever reason, who are normally right, they called him Bryce. And I was a bit confused. I'm like, I'm sure it's Brees, just like in, you know, it's Nice, not nice. So I checked with the team and it was Brees. Um, so I got a lot of remarks saying, you know, you're, you're pronouncing this incorrectly. Jens Vox. If you say Jens Vox, no one knows who you're talking about. If you say yep. Jens Voigt, they do. So I say Jens Vox and people are like, who's that guy? Well, he's been the Tour de France 17 times. But he's had his name mispronounced for, for the, his entire career as well. Um, Ayrton Senna. Ayrton is not how you pronounce Ayrton Senna's name. But then Murray Walker tried to get it right. Nobody knew who he was for a season. So Ayrton Senna said, just go with Ayrton Senna because that is you know, easier for everybody to do. And then, you know, you, go, you watch the, the Tour de France in Spain and they don't call it the Tour de France. They call it the Volta Francia. You go and watch the Tour de France in the Netherlands and it's the Ronde van... So, you know, I make an effort to try and get them right, but sometimes you make mistakes and you just apologize, you know, you apologize, you try and you, you make an effort to get it right and you're always going to make mistakes. And I've also, Bobby, I've got, I've got a couple of things that have stuck with me. This one's from Morgan Freeman. Don't take criticism from somebody you wouldn't take advice from. So that helped me deal a lot with some of the feedback that you get on social media. So I don't take criticism from somebody that I wouldn't take advice from because all the people I know in my life who are successful aren't busy on social media telling other people what they're doing wrong. In, a, you know, in addition to that, you just try your hardest to try and get it right and you're going to make mistakes, particularly when you're live on air for five or six hours, you're absolutely going to make mistakes. And so tell me, is there a particular year or a particular era of the Tour de France that you would have loved to have been commentating on but weren't able to? Oh, that's the, the period of any sport when you're falling in love with it. Like, you know, we, I still get excited when I see little snippets from the late 80s and the early 90s. And there's a Twitter account called Cycling Memoirs who puts up little two-minute clips from that period. You know, I, one of my favourite memories is when Miguel Linderain won the stage to lose Artie Den in 1990 by five seconds ahead of Greg LeMond, and then LeMond ended up six seconds behind Chiapucci in the yellow jersey. And Greg LeMond couldn't pronounce Claudio Chiapucci's name correctly, and he was calling him Cappuccino. You know, it was... So, we've all done it, Bobby. You know, I'd love, I'd love that period because that was when I was falling in love with the sport. But I think the period that we're in now is super exciting. Look at the young generation that is coming through. Pogacar, just as soon as I see him on the screen, when they get onto the final climb, I move a little bit further forward in my seat and my posture improves because I'm convinced that something is going to happen. Remco Evenepoel, once he returns from that horrible crash in Lombardia, seeing Walt Van Aert win sprint stages and riding everybody off his wheel on the front, there's 25 guys left when one of the best sprinters in the world swings off. I, mean, we are, I think we're coming into a golden period for the sport. 
and and Mark Hershey as well, twenty two oh. years old from Sunweb. I mean, this you're right. The, this new young generation is just so exciting and and fun to watch. And I hate to say it, but I don't I don't see anything changing. I mean, these guys are going to keep doing what they're doing because what they're doing right now is is plenty. Yeah. So. You know, the old thing that, oh, you know, you can't do the Tour de France until you're 25 uh, out the window, you know, yeah. with, with the success of all these young guys. I mean, you know, Caleb, he's only, what, 26? 26. Uh, Daniel Martinez is is 24. Uh, Soren Craw Anderson, who won the other day, is is 26. The guy that won today, Leonard Kamna, he's 24, 24 just turned 24. Yeah. I mean, wow. The, a- the sport... It has changed, and yeah, I think you're it's a right. Good place. Yeah, you're right. This is a good time to commentate. So, I'll put this on Mark Hershey. How good have Sunweb been? Yeah, strategically, they're calling the shots. And what I like about Sunweb and putting tradition aside, Matt Winston has been the guy calling a lot of the shots for them. Now, here's a guy who's never raced in the Pro Peloton, so he's not bound by tradition. And then the stage into Lyon that Soren Crow Anderson won, they initially had two guys in the break. They thought the break was going to be maybe 10 or 12 riders. It was only another couple of guys out there, and he figured, not going to work, waste of energy. Back you come. So not bound by tradition at all because he hasn't ridden the tour. He's making clear decisions based on what he thinks is the best option for the team, and they have been, I think, with the resources that they've got, the best team strategically. They've been absolute joy to watch. And their lead-out trains have been pretty damn impressive, Uh Case Bowl hasn't been able to come through with the win as of yet, but you look at the, you know, five guys lined up there when the other teams have, you know, one or two, it's, it's, it's quite impressive. So yeah, Matt and that, that whole team is, is, is riding a wave right now. And, you know, we got some more stages to come. I'm sure we'll see Hershey's name up there again. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, Case Bowl hasn't won yet. But it's not because of the lead-out train. That's the best lead-out train. Yeah. So yeah. So now, Gus, right now, this is the best time to commentate. There we go. Well, I, I would, I would have to agree with you. I think. Um, I don't know if it's through this podcast, sort of paying more kind of attention to the detail of of the racing, but it's exciting. And and to your point, right, that there there are slowly the molds and the traditions of the sport. There are people coming out there, and um, be it in in management or in directing or just in the riders themselves just doing it differently um and it's good to see and it needs it needs to happen more and so yeah i would agree i think we are coming into a pretty special age of the sport and it'll be exciting to see what happens and another one of the reasons that i have that mission statement about infecting as many people as possible with the bike bug is that my life is infinitely better for the fact that i've had cycling in it and you know i'm sure yours is as well i can't imagine my life without cycling well, mate, I, I must say, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and we really appreciate your time and your insights to what goes on behind the scenes because, um, I mean, I, there was quite a bit there that I didn't, didn't know uh, prior to this conversation and I feel like I would probably know more than, than the average person, so I really appreciate that. Uh, it's been fun. I've really enjoyed talking about the earlier part and the coverage, the American coverage, and that was the coverage we got back here as well. And that part where you fall in love with the sport and some of the old commentary that sparks your interest and hearing you, Bobby, talk about some of the things that Phil said that stayed in your mind that inspired you. And I'm hoping that there's a 14-year-old kid, boy or girl out there with my voice repeating over their head and hopefully I'm inspiring them to go out there and chase their dreams as well. Awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on. 
I don't know, have a little hot tea or something like that because you got to get. I got to go training. Oh damn! No, 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 I've just got. I got to go train. I got to do the Graham Brown program, and if I don't do the program, I'll get a text message. And what's on the program today? Um, five five minute intervals at um up. I'm doing about 110 percent of my FTP or something like that. How much rest in between? Five. Is that okay, Bobby? I'm working on my FTP. I'm trying to get my FTP up a bit, Bobby. I'm at 320 at the moment. I weigh 75 kilos. I'm aiming for 350. Uh, in how long? Uh, at the, by the end of the tour? <laughs> by the end of the tour. <laughs> I was about to say, if you can increase your FTP 30 watts in a week, uh, no, no, no. I'm out no, of a no. job. No, 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 no. By the end of the week. By, by summer, by, uh, by January. I'm not on a crash course. I'm not about to, you know, completely buckle myself. I'm realistic. Maybe. Yeah. Well, let's let's just say that that's not going to be an easy one. You better no. have a puke bucket next to you. That's a tough one. And don't forget to refuel. That five minutes isn't just for spinning the legs. You got to eat and drink. Yeah, I'm on it. <laughs> and that's it, everyone. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Matt Keenan for joining us. You can find all of our past episodes, as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O, Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can reach us on social media at thatisgus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Get in touch with us there. Give us any suggestions, feedback. We've been appreciating all of the feedback that we've been getting about our In the Shadow of Latour series. So we really appreciate the listening uh, and, and, and the support. Until next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Gus, and thanks everyone for listening. Bobby Julik here reminding you to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. What bike? has been at the heart of performance cycling at the very highest level since the year 2000. Fast forward to 2020 and the Watt Bike Atom, the first dedicated indoor smart bike, is available to buy in the U.S. With Bluetooth, Ant Plus, and FEC connectivity to the world's leading training and racing apps, real ride feel technology to mimic the feeling of riding on the road, and data accuracy of plus or minus 2% across the full power curve. The Watt Bike Atom is your perfect training partner all year round. For more information, visit wattbike.com/us.